Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where S is for Spectre, the 2015 James Bond film starring Daniel Craig as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we take a closer look at the 24th Eon Bond film, he's a kite dancing in a hurricane, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. <laughs> Hello. And joining us once again, he knows what C stands for, it's Mr. Mark Harrison. <laughs> he's a what? Dancing in a hurricane? <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> welcome back, welcome back. So, uh, Skyfall was the last film we covered, and uh, Eon really broke the mould with that movie. Uh, they delivered the first billion-dollar Bond film, and the question was, could they repeat that success? Uh, Do you recall your first um, brushes with with Spectre the first time you saw it? Uh, yeah, it was. Um... We'll get to when we get to the release, but I had an unusual release this one. It was kind of like a Monday night preview thing that happened at the same time as like the Royal premiere. And I can't remember that happening another time for a Bond film, and I don't think it happened for, for No Time to Die either. It had a sort of um, odd, staggered opening. But I was there. Um, I was ready and waiting for Spectre. And, um, hmm. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's this thing of, you know, everyone comes out with going, well, it's not as good as Skyfall. And then there's just sort of gradual, there's, there's degrees of it's not as good as Skyfall. And everyone, I think, over the course of rewatching this film will be sort of sliding towards about the same place on this film, I feel like. What about you, Brendan? Yeah, I was uh, really hyped for this because on, on the back of Skyfall, just, you know, there hadn't been one that I was looking forward to as, as much for a while, I think. Mm. And I, and I remember watching this twice at the cinema, quite close together as well. Just I think that's just to check if my uh, initial findings were correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean I've, I had a few brushes with this film through through my uh, through my job, and um, I remember seeing it uh, at the cinema with my father-in-law, and um, yeah, it just being one of those movies that sort of um, you know you you sat through and. Just didn't wow me like Skyfall did at the time. Mm. Um, so uh, they, I think there's bits that, that I liked about it. But um, yeah, um, I mean, the film itself, uh, just a, a quick synopsis. Uh, uh, it's a cryptic message from the past leads James Bond to Mexico City and Rome, where he meets his be- the beautiful widow of an infamous criminal. After infiltrating a secret meeting, 007 uncovers the existence of the sinister organization Spectre. Needing the help of the daughter of an old nemesis, he embarks on a mission to find her. And as Bond ventures towards the heart of Spectre, he discovers a chilling connection between himself and the enemy he seeks. Um, so, I mean, that's that's sort of the summary. And before before we dive into it, I found this quite interesting quote from Sam Mendes um, mm. from a set visit in an empire. And it said, in Skyfall, we got to Bond age 12 when his parents died. But what happened after that? 
what happened during his, his adolescence is a kind of retrospective creation story in a way. When you looked at the surface of Skyfall, it felt like an ending, but it was a new beginning on so many levels. It felt like there were the all these threads to pull. So let's pull them. <laughs> mm, no, don't. It's like when you pull a loose thread <laughs> on a jumper, just falls to pits. Mm. <laughs> well, let's 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 start then. Um, as we uh, as we usually do, right at the beginning, by talking about what what it was like in 2015. Well, 2015 was a real money making year for film. the The top grossing film grossed over two billion dollars. Any guesses what that was? Star Wars: Force Awakens. It was indeed, and um, we we did the Skyfall one recently. And Tom, you said that that premiere was the day that they announced Disney were buying Star Wars. That's right. Wow. Yes, so, yes. So, it took so a... yeah, so three years, and they've uh, for they've gone to real big bucks mm. for the first one. It was only the third film to pass two billion dollars and made it the third highest grossing film of all time. The other top ten, it, it's uh, it's big, big money again. Like Jurassic World, one point six billion. Fast and Furious Seven, one point five billion. Uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron, one point four. Minions, one point one, and then Spectre coming in at sixth, um, which we'll get to later on, I'm sure. But it made eight hundred eighty million. But the big deal in terms of uh, the run up to Spectre is Kevin McClory. Ring that klaxon again, yet again. He passed away in 2006. See the Kevin McClory episode for uh, an in-depth look at this. But um, November 2013, Dan Jack and MGM announced that they had purchased all the remaining character and story rights from the McClory estate. And they released uh, an announcement that said, Dan Jack, the producer of James Bond films and MGM, the long-time distributor of the Bond films, along with the estate and family of the late Kevin McClory, have announced that we have acquired the rights and interests relating to Bond, thus bringing an amicable conclusion to the legal and business disputes that have arisen periodically for over 50 years. So this was, you know, huge. And uh, at the time, they didn't disclose how much money it was. And uh, I still can't find that. So they've not released how much, you know, how much that went for. But yeah, this was a long ongoing thing. And if you if you see a lot of previous episodes where it, you see how this tangles, uh, much like the the title credits for this film, actually, the, you know, the tentacles really tangling around the whole Bond franchise. So yeah, it all, all ties back to that. But this meant they had the rights to Spectre and Blofeld. And um, John Logan, uh, who actually before Skyfall was released, John Logan said the that James Bond should always fight Blofeld. Um, interesting there, he's he's pl- laying the seeds, planting the seeds there. Um, and Barbara Broccoli also said, Spectre has, in the whole history of Bond, plays an important role. We thought, okay, now's the time to explore that again in a new and exciting and different way. We wouldn't be attempting to go there unless we knew we had a good way of doing it. So, the rights are back. And what do they do with it? They get into pre-production. Yes, they do. And so after um, after Skyfall, obviously, a film that grossed $1.1 billion at the global box office, like massive, you know, the biggest hit in Bond history, even when you were just the whole Thunderball thing for inflation. So the question is, obviously, you know, James Bond will return, but what's next? And shortly after the release of Skyfall, 
uh, Baz Bamagboy for the Daily Mail, who's normally a good source for kind of um, inside news on, on Bond productions, reported in uh, February 2013 that Mendes was 75% certain to be back. Uh, that's what that's what the, the sort of insider had said, that he was basically 75% of the way uh, to being convinced to direct Bond 24. So Sam Mendes was duly offered the director's chair on Bond 24 and he promptly declined uh, because Sony had a release set for summer 2015 and uh, he had lots of other commitments. In his statement uh, to Empire magazine, he said, uh, directing Skyfall was one of the best experiences of my professional life. I have theatre and other commitments, including productions of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and King Lear, that need my complete focus over the next year and beyond. Broccoli and Wilson responded that they respected Mendy's decision and hoped they'd get to work for him again. Anyway, before we get to that, uh, so May 2013, we heard that there was a number of directors in the frame. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn was uh, reportedly offered it. He later said that he balked at the idea of working on a big budget a studio film. Uh, Kerry Fukunaga went for dinner with uh, Barbara Broccoli in New York uh, and passed but asked to be considered for future films, which has been all panned out with No Time to Die. Uh, Martin Tildum, who directed the very good Norwegian thriller Headhunters and oh, went yeah. on to make The Imitation Game the same year instead, he said he was in consideration. And uh, there was a report from Variety, also in May 2013, that said Ang Lee, Shane Black, David Yates and Tom Hooper were also among those considered, which is some kind of axis of like, you know, good, bad, artistic <laughs> We would fit that in there somewhere. We have, you know, Life of Pi, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and Cats. <laughs> Stick on some kind of um, some kind of axis. Um, however, July by July 2013, just nine months after the release of Skyfall, uh, Mendy's changed his mind. Uh, stating that he'd um, he'd found the script for Bond Twenty Four and the long term future plans for the franchise appealing, and uh, the the release date was duly delayed for him to later on in twenty fifteen. Um, Mendes uh, came and heard that they were developing a story with Blofeld and Spectre, and um, he agreed with where they were at that point, saying that it's important to avoid the Austin Powers factor, and we'll come back to that. Like one of his suggestions huh. coming into this was that um, what if Blofeld was a woman? Uh, suggesting Tilda Swinton could be like a Blofeld type character, or um, what if we had a female henchman, like a female version of Oddjob or Jaws, and then throughout the fraught development of this film, they wanted to make sure they didn't have both primary leads be female, so they wound up having um, neither. Um, his quote, though, <laughs> on on the tone of this one, um, coming to this off of Skyfall, is that. Um, uh, Mendy said, Daniel and I both remembered Live and Let Die as our first Bond movie. I wanted to make a film that was more flamboyant, more fun, with more adventure and romance like the earlier Roger Moore movies. I felt there was a different kind of Bond movie I'd like to try and make. He also said, with Spectre, I wanted to make Bond more proactive than in Skyfall, give him a chance of redemption and escape. Um, as he had done on Skyfall, he insisted to uh, to Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson that he um, had had free reign a little bit in his directing. He didn't want them to sit next to him at the monitor screen, which he felt they must have gotten used to over their time making these films. But again, they they duly granted him a free reign on this. Um, so yeah, Sam Mendes back in the director's chair after all, after that wobble, Hopper left you in a little bit of suspense there. Um, just one quote uh, before we move on. Like Looking back on the experience directing Skyfall and Spectre in 2019, Sam Mendes told the Sunday Times... Uh, when I think of them, my stomach churns. It's just so hard. You feel like the England football manager. You think, if I win, I'll survive. If I lose, I'll be pilloried. There is no victory, just survival. Which is a nice, cheerful <laughs> uh, final I think the, 
Yeah, the, I think the undercurrent of, of all of that is that there, were, he, there was some resistance from Mendes to return. Yeah. And, and you can un- understand that, really. You know, the, he has delivered the biggest Bond film of all time. It's, it's hard to recapture that magic. Um, hmm. That's the general sense I, I, I feel you get from, from him on this picture. So interestingly, with, with Spectre, it's one of the few films where you get a glimpse behind the scenes of the unsanitized version of the story because um, while Spectre was in development, Sony pictures were hacked by hackers. Uh, it's believed in response to the Seth Rogen, James Franco movie, The Interview, um, and tons of information about the making of Spectre was was leaked online, and it's it's still able to find. So this is one of the few where we know in great detail how the script was developed. So buckle yourself up because this is a, a bumpy ride. Hmm. So just a few weeks after the release of Skyfall, Purvis and Wade, Rob, per, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade said that they would not be returning for Bond Twenty Four. Um, while talking at the Doha Tribeca Film Festival. They said, we've done five movies. We've gotten it to a good place. I know that John Logan and Sam Mendes have come up with a plot for another one, which takes the pressure off us because these films take up a lot of time. They both said that we were going to stop with Quantum of Solace, but it's good to go out with a high on with Skyfall. Interestingly, uh, in that same interview, they were asked, what's the one thing that you can't do in a Bond script? And they've said time travel and killing him off. So um, uh, hmm. expect time travel in the next one. Um <laughs> John, so John Logan had uh, returned. He was a, a very strong collaborator with Sam uh, Mendes. And so John Logan said that he wanted to build upon uh, what they'd done with Skyfall, but make it its own unique animal. Um, so John, he set about writing a script for Spectre in 2013 that included Blofeld and Spectre. Now, there is uh, a few reports around online about what John Logan's first draft looked like. And there is a post on the MI6 community board, which has uh, 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 claims to have a lot of information about John Logan's first script. And it says it was Logan who devised the day of the dead opening, the Rome meeting and the car chase, the Mr. White scene, the Austrian spa and plane chase, the North African train ride and the finale in London. Um, and the idea of Bond falling in love and leaving MI6 was always the big hook of the film from the outset. Interestingly, this early version of the script had Bond working undercover as a cage fighter in Amsterdam at the start. Um, and just fast forward a year's time and you find the film Jason Bourne has Jason Bourne fighting yeah. as a, uh, undercover as a cage fighter. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, life imitating art. Um Blofeld uh, in this early version of the script is revealed in the very opening sequence. And apparently it's got this really cool sort of moment where bond is using a, a, a code book to decipher a message and he finds the name blofeld within it and it's at this point logan also introduced the idea that there's a mole within mi6 and the character that it was going to turn out to be was tanner there's no reference to Ham- franz oberhauser or any sort of um uh alternate like brother character for bond in this version and the blofeld that john logan wrote was an african warlord who had a grudge against Britain going back to colonial days and that character was going to be played by Chiwetel Ejiofor and that's confirmed within the the Sony leak Mm. Um, there was a female um, hench person as um, as Mark mentioned that was going to be a black ops CIA agent called Charlotte who works with Bond at the start but it's later revealed to be a Spectre agent but all the stuff about Oberhauser C the nine eyes all that sort of stuff 
was not in this early draft. So Logan did another draft where he moved the Amsterdam City Amsterdam opening for Mexico City and the Day of the Dead. Um, and that Money Penny was going to be heavily involved in that opening sequence, and she was going to get injured and have to go to hospital. But at this stage, Eon and MGM and Sony were not happy with this second draft. They felt that the second draft was worse than the first draft. And so that sort of paved the way for Purvis and Wade to return. Mm. So they came back. And also Jez Butterworth, who had done a uncredited rewrite on Skyfall, he came in and worked on Spectre as well. Um, I think possibly before Purvis and Wade came in, but Purvis and Wade were brought in to change it rather than come up with it from absolutely nothing. So they were working off John Logan's script. So. This is where the hack comes into play. So there was a hack, the Sony hack in November 2014, and um, it was revealed that there was a spiraling budget that was reaching £300 million, and that was causing some friction between Sony and Eon. Um, yeah, I mean, this all this all ties back to a deal that Sony had done with MGM for Casino Royale and Quantum of Sol- Solace. They basically renegotiated that deal, and it meant that Sony were on the hook for 25% of the movie's cost. So they were very, very keen to keep costs down um, at this stage. And at uh, at this point, it was going to cost a hell of a lot more than Skyfall. So then with the Purvis and Wade drafts of the script, you get the Oberhauser twist gets brought in, which has its roots in Ian Fleming's short story, Octopussy, um, which reveals that... Um, uh, the character of Hans Oberhauser, who was a father figure to Bond. And then this is where Mendes conceded the idea of a natural child had been pushed out cuckoo in the nest. And that became Franz Oberhauser. Um, so from there in December, 2014, there was a press conference held at Pinewood studios and it announced the 24th James Bond film on the 007 stage. It was announced it was going to be called Spectre revealed who the principal cast was and it also revealed the aston martin db10 but just days later after this the eon had to release a statement to say that uh the screenplay for the film had been stolen and that they might seem to publish it and that they would take uh, legal action if anyone were to publish it so uh they were obviously running a little bit scared and this is where you get all the leaked script notes from the sony executives so one of the things I found quite interesting was that uh, another hench person that had been added in was a lesbian bad lady uh, who in the script was Irma Bunt from, mm, you well. know, from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. And basically the script's notes were that the film, they were happy with the film right up to the train sequence. And it was after the train sequence that things just sort of fell apart. Jonathan Glickman, a Sony, uh, sorry, a MGM exec said, for what it's worth, I think the first hundred pages are fantastic. It's fun, emotional, and the major logic issues have been rectified. And the relationship with Madeline is terrific. But then Glickman continues, you guys set me up for a letdown on a climax, so I was not surprised. And the, the basically, I think the problems stem from from the introduction of, of this idea of the Franz Oberhauser. And in the, in the scripts that leaked, uh, Blofeld was referred to as Heinrich Stockman. Obviously, that was a, uh, a red herring. Everyone sort of knew it was Blofeld. But one of the notes says, but there needs to be some kind of twist rather than a series of watery chases with guns. This is Blofeld, after all. What does he have up his sleeves? And H- Hannah Mengele, who was the co-president of Columbia, was even harsher. She said, if this is a movie that resol- revo- resolves the last three films, then the emotional significance of that idea for Bond seems only lightly served at best. 
He appears to fall in love again for the first time since Vesper, but there's no real emotional vulnerability there. Why this girl? When he leaves her at the end of the movie and throws his gun in the river when he's done, he's gone for good, or is this just a well-earned vacation as it is so often the ending of of a Bond film? It's just hard to know what significance any of these final gestures carry. And then one final script note is that one of the execs says that they objected to the way Bond kills Blofeld at the end of the movie. He said, and the killing of Blofeld with a final shot to the head, I don't know. It seems brutal, even for Bond. So very different script to the one we finally got. But I mean, these script negotiations were going up right to the wire, right up until the point Mm. they started filming. Um, and we know from past experience when they're working on the script on the hoof, there's trouble ahead. You only have to look at what tomorrow never dies, quantum of solace, um, yeah. to see that it hasn't worked out for them in the past, but nonetheless, they, they went ahead and started shooting the movie. Yeah. So, and this is another frustrating thing because you look at the key crew, they mm. are assembling you know, some Bond stalwarts, really. You've got Dennis Gassner, who's now on his third Bond film as production designer. Thomas Newman's back for his second as composer. Chris Corbold is his 14th, and he's special effects and miniature effects supervisor, also serving as the second unit director. Um, he, he worked with Steve Begg, who was back as visual effects supervisor. And we had Gary Powell, who had... Uh, been the stunt coordinator on all the Daniel Craig bonds up to this date. But we've got a new crew. Um, we've got a new DOP and with big shoes to fill because, you know, as we talked about on Skyfall, Roger Deakins, the look of that film is just stunning. Um, so in comes Hoyt Van Hoytamer, uh, who had worked on Interstellar. And that's what got in the role because Sam Mendes was shown a preview of it. Uh, by Christopher Nolan and so he needed someone that you know was prove proved they could do it on a big scale and he said uh, Hoyt comes from the European tradition but he understands American filmmaking he has his own very unusual and very particular aesthetic but he also understands classic filmmaking um, and he decided not to shoot digitally Skyfall was shot digitally this time Hoytema suggested that Spectre was shot on 35 millimeter film. Um, and they, they, they also were in talks to shoot parts of the film in IMAX, um, which wouldn't happen until the following film. I think Hoytema brings a sort of cold clinical sort of, uh, precision to the cinematography. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people have issues with the color grading on this movie, um, yeah. which I don't know if it's how much of that is from Hoytema yeah. or mm. a post-production decision. But I think generally the I think the cinematography is pretty pretty good in this movie. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I was, that's what I was going to say. The shots are all great. I don't know where the color grading thing comes from, but it's the fact of like in like rewatching the film for this, put the Blu-ray in and put the the extra features on afterwards. I hadn't watched the special feature about the opening of the like the shooting of the opening sequence before, and the color compared to that sepia washed out opener that we get was just dazzling. I'm like, what did they do to this? To- yeah. Yeah, just in that making of feature, it looks so much better than it does in the film. Yeah, it's just a. It almost feels like a lazy shorthand to say we're in South America. It's therefore yeah. it's going to be yellow. 
Oh, that, yeah, that's even worse. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. So, onto the returning cast. Uh, Daniel Craig returns for his fourth time as Ian Fleming's Bond, James Bond, 007. Um, he also gets his first co-producer credit on the series, which um, reflected his contribution to the, the film's development. We've mentioned the sort of the script pinballing back and forth. But, you know, even when it was between Mendes and Logan, you know, before Logan went off to uh, work on Penny Dreadful, Daniel Craig and um, Sam Mendes are rereading Fleming during the break and sort of like sending each other things mm. like, what if we did this, what if we did that? They've got Live and Let Die as a, as a touchstone, which I think shows most in that opening sequence in the sort of Day of the Dead imagery. Um, but he spoke in, um, I think he was at the press conference that announced the film, he spoke of his desire to make a fun Bond film as well. Like the same as Mendes said about wanting to do something a bit, you know, a bit funnier and a bit lighter. Uh, he's, he's kind of saying, can I do a Bond film where he has funny lines and he gets the girl and he's not just in crisis all the time like he is in the first three films? And, and he added, we're making a Bond film. I want the celebration of all that back in. I want to have some fun. And we'll get to how that went down as we, as we get into production. <laughs> um, also returning is Jesper Christensen, uh, who's central to this idea the film has of retroactive continuity. He's back for his third appearance as Mr. White. Um, the quantum, sorry, Spectre, sorry, quantum agent, <laughs> who we first see at the um, Drake scene around, most memorably at the end, and then throughout Quantum of Solace as well, points the way to the tentacles of Spectre and also then to Madeline Swan. Um, Christensen, widely reported in the Bond fan community in 2010, uh, written up, if you like, for his comments at the Berlin Film Festival that the Bond films were, quote, really shit. <laughs> so this, <laughs> this got around a bit. Um, he did backpedal on this shortly afterwards. It wasn't just when he was <laughs> recasting this. Um, he stated, I have a great respect for the people who make the, uh, make Bond films. They've managed to create their very own meta-universe, almost a genre in itself, and a series of 23 films now. It is unique. Casino Royale is a great little film, and I'm proud to be in it. He didn't have any comments about um, Quantum of Solace, unfortunately. Um, also returning, uh, you've got the MI6 family that Skyfall kind of works so hard to, to reinstate. You've got Ben Wishaw back as Q. Um, he gets a little bit of what we called in previous episodes Field Q in this <laughs> in this um in this outing. Um there's a lovely detail about him being afraid of flying and then that becoming his character detail, I guess, that he then goes out and becomes Field Q, even though he's uh, terrified of it. That's lovely. Um Naomi Harris is back as Money Penny. Um Skyfall kind of ends on that on that note of a kind of just taking Bond's quite condescending advice that field work's not for everybody and getting back behind the desk because that's what we have to we have to do at the end of this film to, to do our new beginning, same as the old beginning. Um and Mendy's noted with hindsight that Inspector her character's just sort of um he sort of said, like looking back on the film, that she's sort of let down in this one. There was a lot of stuff in development they wanted her to do. They wanted to be more involved in the investigation of uh, the Pale King or Mr. White as he's revealed to be back home. Um, she's, she's still present throughout the film. There's still detail in there, but um, she does also get a nice... Um, she kind of has a role in the um, the promotional campaign for the film. I remember the... Do you remember the advert for like the phone that they paired with this, the Sony Xperia phone that um, they had her like running around sort of delivering on a mission in that, that advert, which is more than she gets to do in this film, I would suggest. <laughs> um, Riff Fiennes also returns as M. Um, he's talking about his character in this one. He said that he's been out of a job and has to come back to this role, to, to being the role of M. And he feels like he has to win Bond's respect while also contending with the the idea that his his section is is outmoded. 
Um, interestingly, in the 2021 interview um, on the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, uh, Fine said that at one point in the development of this film, M was going to turn out to be the villain. That either he was working with mm. Blofeld or he was Blofeld or something. Um, but he firmly told Mendes, I don't want to play M, and then you turn around and make him the bad guy. That's not who M is. So that's part of... Um, that's part one of the things that sort of fell out of the the plot of this film as it went along. Um, for, and returning from before Skyfall, uh, Rory Kinnear is back for a third time as Tanner, another hey. character who apparently was um, was going to be the villain at one point. Um, I remember reading it was going to be a thing of him um, him downloading MI six files in a, um, in a Bond smart blood, and then that was going to be what Spectre was after. Um, but Kinnear discussed um, being glad to be back at the weirdness of shooting the first scene of principal photography, which was um, him on the Thames, him and Daniel Craig on the Thames going to um, going to Q's new gaff. Uh, finally, on the returning cast front, another member of the MI6 family, Judy Dench, has a cameo in the tacked on kind of like message from beyond the grave uh, to Bond. She's invited back to sort of set up that that thing. This was filmed the morning before Prince of Photography. Principal photography started. Mendes said they were glad to have her back. Uh, she's a familiar face to the and to remind the audience of right at the start. They just can't quit her, can they? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, new cast, loads of new cast uh, to talk about. Um, so I will try and rattle through this as quickly as I can. Um, Bond girls in 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 Spectre. You got Stephanie Sigman, who's the first ever Mexican Bond girl as Estrella. She appears in the pre-title sequence known at the time for being in Narcos um, and a number of other things. She was in an Arctic Monkeys video in 2014 as well. And since then, she's been in uh, The War on Everyone, Annabelle Creation, and in TV's SWAT. Um, she basically, they were looking for a Mexican actor to play opposite Bond, and she sent them the tape, and, and they liked it. So, um, yeah, she, she's only in the in the film very, very briefly at the very start. More notable, you've got Monica Bellucci as Lucia Schiara, and obviously she was um, touted to play Paris Carver in 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies, but MGM oh. vetoed that decision and preferred yeah. Terry Hatcher as a bigger name. Um, but Bellucci um, had, you know, been is an acclaimed actor. I mean, she started work uh, her career as a model before moving into acting, and is known for films like Irreversible, Passion of the Christ. Matrix, the Matrix sequels, mm. um, and when Pierce Brosnan was asked about Monica Bellucci uh, after it turned out she wasn't cast, he said Monica Bellucci is a ravishing, ravishing beauty, a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. She screen tested to be a Bond girl, and the fool said no. I bet they've had a better time on set with her as well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and at 50, uh, Monica Bellucci is the oldest Bond girl yet, Inspector. So a good step in the right direction with this one. Um, she's four years older than Daniel Craig in the movie, and she's also a full 11 years older than the previous oldest Bond girl, Honor Blackman, in uh, Goldfinger, who was 39 when she played Pussy Galore. Uh, when she, we talked about this on a previous episode, but when she was offered the, when she was called by Sam Mendes to discuss the part, she says, I'm a girl, not a woman. I'm a mature woman. Do I have to replace Judy Dench? Um, and so I thought that was quite funny. Um, but she said in an interview uh, later, she said for the first time in history, James Bond is going to have a story with a mature woman. The concept is revolutionary. Um, but again, she's also not in the film a great deal either. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. The, 
the Bond girl uh, of the movie really is Dr. Madeline Swan, played by Leah Sidhu. And um, she was very sort of successful by the time she came to Bond, actually. She'd um, won awards for one of her early films called The Beautiful Person. And her family is basically French uh, movie industry royalty. Uh, her grandfather, mm. Jerome, is the uh, chairman of Pathé. Her un- grand-uncle is the chairman of the Gaumont Film Company. Um, and her other granduncle, Michael Sidhu, is a cinema producer and chairman of a Lille football club. And then her father is the founder of the French wireless company Parrot. So she comes from uh, mm. French uh, high society, really. And by this point, she'd already appeared in Inglorious Bastards, Robin Hood, Midnight in Paris, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. But it was Blue is the Warmest Colour that really announced her on the global stage. Um, and she won a, bu- a ton of awards, including uh, a Palme d'Or at Cannes with that movie. And so in 2015, she also starred in The Lobster and she was interviewed about that movie. But she talked a bit about Spectre and she said, uh, right, I thought, right, I really have to go for it, work on my English accent, do some sport and get fit. And I think what's interesting about my character, is she's not impressed by Bond. She, her father is an assassin, so she knows this world. And when she meets Bond for the first time, she doesn't want to be part of this world. And that's what I like. I like the contradiction. So beyond that, you've got some villains. You've got Christoph Waltz as Franz Oberhauser. And again, he had appeared in, in Glorious Bastards as well um, and had won an Oscar for that, as well as Django Unchained um, over the space of three years, which is quite impressive, really. Um, but he also mm. known for Green Hornet, Big Eyes, Tarzan, a bunch of bunch of movies. He talking about Franz Oberhauser, uh, Christoph Waltz said, Franz Oberhauser is in a way a visionary businessman like, you know, Elon Musk or Richard Branson with a vision for the future and a vision of what development could be and should be to the benefit of humankind. And this was at the stage where the big pretend was that Blofeld wasn't in the movie and that he was yeah. just playing this guy. The, the, his goals and objectives and motivation wasn't actually just professional bond botherer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, he later, after the film came out, sort of was quite reflective and critical of his appearance in the film. He said, I cannot claim that I've really nailed Blofeld. Overall, it held water and was okay, but it wasn't what I've been looking for. I was searching for more inspiration and actor can only be really good when there are shared possibilities. So he would then come on to return in no time to die. As was rumoured to be the case for Dave Batista's Mr. Hinks as well. Um, I'll mention that again in a second. But uh, Dave Batista was asked about playing Mr. Hinks and was asked whether he was inspired by any previous Bond henchmen. And he said, I didn't actually craft Mr. Hinks to rival others. He's simply the most badass dude Bond has ever come up against. So Batista is one of the most acclaimed wrestlers turned actors and he made bit of a slow start in the acting world um, but had appeared in the man with the iron fists before getting his big break in guardians of the galaxy in 2014 as drax and then he appeared in spectre and then he since followed that up with guardians 2 avengers appearances blade runner 2049 june army of the dead and he'll re- reunite with daniel craig in the upcoming glass onion but he asked sam mendes about the character and he said i only asked two questions i asked if mr hinks was a badass and he said yes and i said is mr hinks intelligent he said yes very and that's what i like about mr hinks he's very well dressed (laughs) and very well mannered 
I'm not just here to fight people. He has a sense of humour. He definitely knows what a metaphor is. Do you get that sense (laughs) from the character in the film? I think he's the greatest special effect in this film. He's the, he absolutely understands the assignment. And he's in a film where, I remember when they announced his casting, they introduced him as David Bautista. Like, come on, David (laughs) Bautista. How... We'll get onto the gourmet hot dogness of Sam Mendes as James Bond later on. But you know, the thing is, that this is that whenever he rocks up and just kicks a table at a ceiling, it's perfectly exactly what you want from that <laughs> character. He's he is the greatest thing about this film for me. <laughs> Uh, finally, you've got Andrew Scott as Max Denby, and he was at the time probably best known for playing Moriarty in Sherlock. Um, but his casting in the film, I only learned this again from the hack, was actually um, a bit of a late change and re- was one of the results of MGM and Sony cutting the budget. So Andrew Scott was cast to play C um, because they had originally cast Chiwetel Ejiofor in the part. But right. by casting Andrew Scott, they saved themselves a million dollars, apparently. Was, so, was that in the hack? Was that was that in the hack, emails? yeah. That's embarrassing, yeah. yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. But talking about it, before this was sort of revealed, he says, I was at home when I got the call and rang my parents right away. They were delighted. I'd done lots of experimental theatre, so I say I'm doing a play at the Royal Court, and they're like, uh. but everybody has heard of Bond. So that was it. I mean, he was another character whose information was kept very vague in the run-up because you know, there was a twist coming on him. But that's everyone assembled. Big roster there. I know, right? So on to shooting. They headed to Pinewood December 2014. So uh, they did Pinewood and they were also around London. Um, They were getting the shots uh, at Bond's flat, which was uh, an interior on on the soundstage. They also got Daniel Craig and Rory Kinnear going down the the Thames at this point. Um, But Spectre, this was, it was the first time that we'd seen inside of Bond's London flat since which film? Oh, Um, (laughs) Live and Let Die. die? Yes, correct. Live and Let Die. Yeah. So again, you know, Mendes said he wanted using that as sort of a reference point. And here we are again, we we get to see Bond's uh, pretty empty uh, flat and sad looking flat um but no, no coffee Gassner, machine there no exactly <laughs> well he didn't know how to use it anyway did he so <laughs> dennis gassner said he felt that the empty set showed that 007 is always going to be on the move and it's just a place to put a few things that he has i don't think we ever want to see him comfortable he's an adventurer that's the life of an agent if you get too settled you get too soft yeah but then he gets settled in the next film so. <laughs> also with with Q, so they built on the soundstage. They built his lab, and they they said uh, Dennis Gassner said he, he used the Churchill ba- bunker as inspiration. Um, this time it was coming off the the river though instead. So uh, they enter from directly from the river. Um, he said it was a fun shift from the old Q to the more studied Q, and that translates into this workshop. The other thing that they they did was uh, remarkably at Pinewood the um, on the bridge. I don't, I don't know if one of you is going to talk about this, but um, at the end, the helicopter crashing into the bridge. That's yeah. on the sound stage. And um, Chris Corbold said, we did that inso- inside the 007 stage. Although it would have been very easy to do outside of the stage, but we had to build a track similar to what we did with the tube train in Skyfall going diagonally along the full length of the 007 stage. 
Um, there's a fantastic website, Anderson and Lowe, and they were invited uh, in 2015 to do an art project. And so they visited Pinewood Studios and they created a book, uh, photo- photographed all the, the sets and well worth a look because it, it just shows you the scale of these these sets they built. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, the 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 one that that's quite striking is the one in Rome, um, Blofeld's big table. Mm. That's just phenomenal. It's a big table. Uh, it's mm. a big table like. <laughs> yeah, um, the other thing they did at Pinewood as well, which is impressive, um, they were editing it on the go. So as they were on location around the world, they were sending the footage back oh. using uh, a program which is called Pix. And um, that meant they could be like logging it and uh, and, and sending stuff back and forth um, between between the shooting crew and back at Pinewood, which is pretty impressive. Well, for location stuff, um, filming continued in January 2015 and moved over to Altasi, Austria, um, Austria, which is where you see um, where you see Bond approaching Mister White's safe house. Um, across that big lake that was kind of like a big showcase shot in like the first teaser trailers for the, the film, if I remember yeah. right. Um, also in Austria, um, the Hofner Clinic, where um, Bond meets Madeline, uh, was shot at the, the exterior of the Ice Q Hotel in Sulden. Um, Mendes wanted to shoot the interiors there as well, but the interiors were wound up being shot later um, at Pinewood uh, for that one. Um, also in Austria, the chase where Hinks and his goons are in Land Rovers and Bond is in a prop plane was shot in Kartich and uh, Albertiliak in January and February. Sorry if I'm mangling the pronunciations all over the place here. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where the, a lot of that section of the film all kind of was filmed in, in January and February. Um, the weather was incredibly important to the shoot when they're in Austria. The first assistant director of the film, uh, Michael Lesner, said that if the lake had been frozen, then Bond would have walked across it, and um, because it wasn't frozen, he sails across it. So it was basically they were, you know, having anticipated from shooting in snowy locales in previous films, they kind of like were sort of waiting to see what the weather was like. And mm-hmm. uh, later on, with that chase with the uh, the prop plane and the, the Land Rovers, there wasn't as much snow on location, and some was digitally added in post production, but it did make the chase seem easier to film doing it that way around. So. They weren't so much. They kind of planned for the weather, as I think they have done. Like you look back in the early days where they didn't shoot on Her Majesty's Secret Service a few times. Like you know, it was going to be the next film, and then it wasn't because mm. of the weather. Because they needed, mm. um, yeah. So, um, so that was Austria. Um, the next thing that was shot was the the fight on the train, and this brings us nicely into um, injuries. <laughs> so I didn't mean to say I had quite as much relish as I did, <laughs> but um, there we are. We go. We go. We're going to move into some um, injuries on this. Um, Dave Batista, ever the wrestling stalwart, picked, copped an injury during this sequence. Uh, Craig accidentally broke his nose, punched him square oh. in the face. Uh, according to Mendes, um, Batista just sat it himself, blew the blood out of his nose, and cracked on. <laughs> it was like just ready, <laughs> just ready for another take. Um, however, on the other side of that um, that train fight, um, well, I'll leave it. To, I'll quote um, what Daniel Craig said himself on a 2015 episode of the Graham Norton show. He related of what happened during this fight with with Hinks. Uh, he said, "We learned this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. You basically spend a week shooting after all that." And Dave was being really great with me, but he's a big, big guy, and I forget how big he is. He was sort of throwing me against this wall, and he was being very gentle because he should. It's pretend. I just said, Dave, Dave, mate, it's all right. Come on, you can chuck me a bit. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. So he did. I ended up on the wall. 
<laughs> but my knee was sort of over there somewhere. <laughs> I was like, oh God, I knew it was horrible. Anyone who's had that kind of injury, you just know in your head that something is wrong. So yeah, Craig had a very bad knee injury from as a result of this this altercation. Um, admirably, to his credit, he, he powered through. Um, if, if he said that basically he had a physiotherapist on set and he took twice as long to do his workouts because the alternative was to shut down production for six months while he recovered. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this seems to be a case like between this and Mission Impossible films, there seems to be a thing of like Leeds powering through injuries. Now it's almost as if it's part and parcel of the, the thing. Um, he said he saw the bright side of um, sort of the enforced kind of downtime is that the filmmakers could exhale and kind of take stock while they were um, while they were sort of rearranging around his injury. And he noted that like while it slowed him down, it didn't stop him doing what he wanted to do. And I, I think it kind of lends to his performance in this. I think there's a sort of graceful, you know, as compared to Skyfall kind of calling him a dinosaur two films after he was just new, you know, you've got, you've got this sort of like, you've got this more graceful kind of um, aging of his, you know, it's you counter to whatever you heard from Tom Jones. It's like he always walks where others run. In this case, <laughs> you know, he sort of takes his time going about. And it's a lovely character detail, and there's, there's a bit I do really like in this at the Hofner Clinic, where he sort of breaks out in a fight with some security guards that Madeline sent after him, and he just sort of like hits one and looks at the other and goes, "Nope." Stop it! Like like a bad dog, and the guy just goes, "All right." <laughs> it's, it's a lovely detail. It's almost it like the it's it, it's throwaway. It's it's nothing as you know. Everyone knows the story of the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing of the, the Harrison Ford just shooting the swordsman, but it's it's a nice touch. Yeah, I think it's quite thin on the ground in, in this film. Um, production did eventually pause for two weeks uh, in April 2015 for Craig to go and get some to go and get knee surgery. Um, but overall, it does sort of like obviously soldiering on, despite how well he did. You know, speaks to why some of this one was so physically exhausting for him, and why during a press junket in July 2015, towards the end of production on this one, uh, Craig famously commented that he'd rather slash his wrists than do another one, which we've covered previously on the No Time to Die mm-hmm. podcast. It, it kind of, um, it kind of, as much as the, uh, he sort of came into this one saying, "Right, let's have some fun," it proved to be quite a physically grueling shoot. Yeah, on the uh, the Being James Bond documentary that they released last year, uh, which you can watch on YouTube, yeah, he says that he basically broke his leg and just, yeah, rather than shutting the movie down for nine months, he just carried on working. Um, mm. And it kind of seems like that's the narrative that they're trying to sell in that, in that he was suffering <laughs> quite a lot on this movie. And he points mm. out the scene right at the start of the movie where he goes onto the balcony and walks along the edge of that. Yeah. And he's saying, I'm, I'm jumping down, but I'm going to my knee. Don't go. Don't go. And Ooh. you can see that he is walking at a slower pace. But you're right. I think it does yeah. work for this movie. When I, I think when you watch Skyfall, he sort of, he, he, there's a physicality to it. He sort of thrusts himself into every scene. Um, mm. Whereas in this, it's a much more, a much more sedate um, bond. Yeah, it's one of the things that's a bit more reminiscent of um, the Roger Moore films. <laughs> <laughs> that's not too mean to say. <laughs> Coffee? Medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko fi dot com forward slash james bond a to z where you can buy us a coffee for just three pounds or for three pounds a month thanks for listening back to the show
Is that all it does? Right, to Italy. So um, another thing that was revealed in the hack was that one of the cost-cutting exercises when they were trying to reduce the budget was that they had to scale back the Rome shoot. There was originally going to be a section in the car chase in Rome where um, Bond parachutes from a helicopter onto a bridge. Um, But that was all cut and it was sort of moved into just being a high-speed chase along the river. Um, And so in March 2018, the production went to Rome for a location. Second unit was there, led by Alexander Witt, and he filmed the chase between Bond's DB10 and Hinks' Jaguar throughout the city. Um, It's a three-week shoot, but with four to five days with the main unit. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I was lucky enough to go to Rome to watch this sequence being filmed. Hmm. Um, And thank God, I've still got all my documents from it. So I'm just going to crib my interview notes from then to tell you what... Um, I can remember about it, but it was, it was largely a night shoot. So the hours were limited and Greg Wilson told me it's been in the script since the beginning. So I've been planning it about a year. It takes a year to plan something like this. And like everything, you're getting permissions, but you're also just making sure that we have enough people to adequately lock off the location. So on some days we have as many as 250 blockers. Your job it is just to make sure no one comes out of any doorways while we're racing these cars through. And I mean, the set visit I went on, I sort of went, the hotel checked in went and then at about eight or nine o'clock at night once it had gotten dark we went we're taken down to the river and we watched you know the bit where uh bond's car is being chased and then uh, along the river and it has to go up the, the side banking um, yeah that's the bit that i saw being done over and over and over again but the sound was uh was incredible hmm. um so Alexander Witt, he said the location here in a way is pretty easy. The challenges were more when we were shooting in the city because of the road closers, because of the timing that we had. And we had a lot of work to do one night. It was 5 p.m. to sorry, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. So you only have six or seven hours of working because a lot of it also happens in the streets rather than down on the river. He says, we're trying to do them as real as possible and not using CG or anything like that. And that's something that I like to do when we do things for real. And Gary Powell echoed that as well. He said, I much prefer it like that. It's what I do stunts for. It's a lot more work because it's real. And so it's harder. Yes, we do use visual effects, but we don't rely on it. We're not Star Wars or something like that, where it basically takes over. Um, And talking about the cars... Uh, he said, Daniel is a suave, smooth person. And so the Aston Martin suits him well. Then we've got Hinks, who's a baddie, who's a big monster of a guy. And he's got a big monster of a car to drive. It's an absolute monster of a car. It's mega. It really is. Obviously a big uh, fan of that. Hmm. And about the cars specifically, Ashley Hollybone, who is the onset vehicle coordinator, said the Jaguar is a prototype. It's a concept car that they produced. It was never meant to go into production. And they've only made a few of them. But for the film, they made eight of them. Um, and the two of those are what we would call hero cars. And they had Jaguar Land Rover engines in them. Um, and Hinks's car just sounded immense. Um, it was huge. And the cars both had to be fitted with oxygen systems in case the cars crashed into the river at any point. Um, and the Aston Martin itself, uh, they had loads of those. Um, and that's based on the Aston Martin, uh, the Vantage V8 Roadster. Um, and the we talked about this on the Aston Martin episode, but I think I think the cost is like a million pounds per car, and Aston Martin gives them to Bond mm. as product placement. Mm. There's no there's no money exchange for this, 
But then I also spoke to the stunt driver, Mark Higgins, who we have talked about on this podcast before, and I've still got the audio of that clip, so I'll insert that into the podcast right here. So can you just give me a full name just for this? Yeah, it's Mark Anthony Higgins. And so you're the stunt driver that drives the bomb car? Yes, that's correct, yeah. And are you, do you drive it throughout the film? Yeah, I'm the only one that's driving the DB10 in the whole film. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's quite a responsibility then, you're basically the other bomb in the film? Well, effectively, in the, for the car <laughs> stuff, yeah, I'm, I'm the car bomb, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's great to have an opportunity to drive such a car and... It's quite an iconic character, so it's pretty yeah. cool, really. Yeah. And it's the only one of its kind? There's ten cars, because I think it's um, Aston's ten movie, isn't it? And they've built ten DB10s. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's quite a rare bit of kit, really. Do you do the pod driving as well? Yes. You yeah, do? Yeah. And so does that offer different challenges for... Totally different. I mean, the, the vehicle's not like a normal car to drive. You haven't got the direct feeling, obviously, a centre of gravity, so it's quite a weird experience especially when you've got the actors inside as well with Daniel and that it's, sure yeah yeah it's obviously quite a responsibility when you've got them underneath you so uh, but uh, yeah it's, it's all good is there a specific style that Bond drives in? Um, yeah I, I think he has I mean my background is rallying and that's what I have been doing professionally for 25 years but uh, Bond has to be fairly slick not aggressive and look pretty cool so I've got to try and make Bond look cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a task, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, can't be hard with this car, though. Yeah, it's a great car. It's lovely to be in something like this. And um, are there any, with it being such a unique car, are there any sort of challenges um, that, it, that it throws up? There's always challenges, um, because what we're putting them through is totally different, you know. The car's not designed for any of this. So no, sure. So the guys do an incredible job preparing them. Um, we do testing as well um, to try... Um, get it ready for these scenarios when you're driving up walls, driving down steps and doing jumps. So um, it's not what you normally see an Aston Martin doing. No, definitely not. And um, so um, is this, this, this isn't your first Bond film? No, I've done the, the last three. I okay. Quantum. Um, I did Skyfall in this one. So, um, yeah, it's just great to be part of the, the whole sort of team of guys, which it's all the same sort of people in every film they're very loyal to everybody it's a family thing it yeah. is a, it is a yeah. family thing definitely yeah. and in terms of the stunts this time round have they upped the ante in, yeah some, some of the, some of them, yeah it's I mean there's more of a car chase in this than what there was in Skyfall yeah so am I right? in front of the array in front of the array okay great yeah, so thank you very well, much I'll, I'll be back in a minute okay. alright lovely thank you very much and there we go great um, yeah. in that scene you know when New York New York comes on yes is there any, apart from Live and Let Die being in New York, is there any other, I was trying to think why that song? Good question. I wonder if it's a nod to Mendes's theatre, musical theatre, mm. something to do with that. I just took it, his reaction, I took it as like his um, his sort of reaction, like 009's taste in music, like present atmosphere and <laughs> like that come on. Um, I did read in the in the course of this, I don't know if you've, you've got this, Tom, but the, the thing that um, this sequence, the idea of Bond being in... Um, an Aston Martin that's not battle-ready, that's not got gadgets loaded up and stuff, was originally planned for Timothy Dalton's third film. It was in one of those scripts. Mm. Is that right? And and made its way into this eventually. Nothing if not a plot refinery, um, the Bond series. But but yeah. I I think it really works for this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's cool. Also, it's the first Bond uh, gadget car we've had uh, for quite some, since in the Daniel Craig era, isn't it? I mean, obviously, we had the DB5 in Skyfall, but it's a new, brand new car. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good gag. It's a good spin on it, as, as much as it's got the sort of, like, the, you know, sort of very wry kind of 
repurposing of all these tropes. It's it's a it's a nice touch. It is genuinely funny. I love the bit where he's behind, which is like pure Roger Moore, where he winds up behind the slower older driver. Yes. <laughs> yeah. to power yeah. it down as the, the airbag gag at the end. Like, it's just pure Moore. <laughs> and the and the landing in the in the street with the uh, the, the the what's it called? The uh, parachute on as well. Mm. You could see Roger doing that as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the opening scene in Mexico, they went to Mexico City in late March uh, to get the opening sequence with the scenes that included the Day of the Dead Festival. And they filmed that in and around the Centro Historico district. So the the um, as it opens, it's it's a really long take and it's six shots that are seamlessly put together. And it was it, it required a lot of. Uh, planning obviously um they didn't require motion control cameras but the 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 joints were done in post uh Mm. through really sort of intricate timing and um projecting it together to make sure it matched um and even matched the mexico locations with the interiors that they had at pinewood as well um so lining it all up um michael g wilson said this is the biggest opening sequence we've ever done maybe the biggest sequence we've ever done. And Mendes said, I felt that there was a kind of cockiness about Bond at the beginning of the movie before anything goes wrong. That was implied by not cutting. And uh, you go back to his injury, that also will play a part of that swagger, won't it? Mm, um, yeah. His different different way of moving yeah. you know, gives a different mood to Bond. Yeah, so again, it, it definitely works. Um so the original concept for this opening was to to shoot the entire sequence in one take. But Sam Mendes said, I decided that would be self-serving, a bit of a show off. And in fact, it was better for dramatic reasons to go into more conventional storytelling and start cutting. So they considered recreating the, this, the location at Pinewood in the back lot, which we know they've done before on other films. Um, because it's complicated and it required that take. But um, they scouted Mexico City and said, basically, how can we not do it here? It's just, it's perfect. Mm. Um, The makeup supervisor, Naomi Don, she worked with artists, local artists, and they had to create the the look for all the supporting artists. So uh, of which there was 1500. So it's a lot of work to be done there. and Chris Corbold was um, making sure that the floats, which were on like trolley casters, so they were barely drivable, um, and just made sure that basically they they looked the part while uh, while they were shooting. But the first AD, Michael Lerman, he um, he used he communicated with the supporting artists through speakers connected to a central microphone, which was called the God Mic. Um, and to, you know, it was long days. It was 12-hour days. So to keep them happy, he got them singing the Bond theme. <laughs> don't know if that would be enough to keep me through <laughs> go, through 12 hours. <laughs> um, but Sam Mendes said as well, you know, links this in particular to Live and Let Die. He says, you see the skull face and you're like, oh, it's Baron Samadhi. It's actually quite different, but there are echoes. Part of the joy of Bond is riffing on the iconography. I was very aware of all the homages that were being paid. So yeah, the, the, in terms of shooting in Mexico, they had tax incentives. Um, there were stipulations that that Mexico wanted as well. It, they had to have a Mexican Bond girl. So that's why we see that, that at the beginning. 
Um, they wanted a non-Mexican villain. They wanted it to showcase the city's skyline as well. Um, and that Day of the Dead parade at the time didn't exist huh. and, wow. until in 2016 due to the interest and obviously everybody had seen this and wanted to attend it. They, um, the government in Mexico decided to, to put one on to promote, promote the, <laughs> the culture. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they put one on and 250,000 people attended on the 29th of October, 2016. So yeah, pretty incredible. Um, yeah. in terms of the hotel coming, crashing down, uh, that was done at Pinewood and Chris Corbold said that it was a four storied building. We had a big weight on the track. It goes down through the ceiling and all the floors collapse. It was done via hydraulics and various other means. Um, and then it goes back to San Mendes uh, in Me- Mexico City. Um, he said it was very complicated and they're dropping bits of ceiling all the way down the track, which is, triggers other bit, a bit like um, like a card, you know, where you push cards over and it carries on. It was pretty much like that. Um, and that this opening pre-title sequence alone, because remember it's shot on film, it used over a hundred thousand feet of film. <laughs> wow! Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I didn't know the thing about the um, the festival not existing until this. But that that's a whole thing <laughs> itself, isn't it? Yeah. You have to imagine it's been it's been massive for tourism, and I guess they know now to add a fourth stipulation to make it all bloody yellow. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they know now. They know now. Yeah. Um, one yeah. of the big um, sort of moments of this, of course, is the is um, the helicopter battle. Uh, between Bontiar and um, a helicopter pilot, um, the centerpiece of which is the barrel roll. Um, second unit director of photography, Alexander Witt, found a YouTube clip of a stunt pilot called Chuck Aaron. He's a Red Bull uh, helicopter stunt pilot. Um, he's performing a barrel roll in a helicopter and suggested it to the producers. Um, he'd never seen it in a film before, so, so in it went. Um, it was originally planned to be... Uh, in the film, when Bond escapes from Blofeld uh, base in Morocco later on in the film, if you remember, they get in the helicopter there. Um, but it was changed around in the course of de- um, developing the script. It was moved to the pre-title sequence where they thought it would have greater impact and it mm. is an impressive stunt. Um, uh, Aaron piloted the, the helicopter himself. He was recruited to do the stunt. Um, he did request that they keep the Red Bull logos on the helicopters, which Barbara Broccoli said absolutely not, <laughs> <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> but yeah, so um, Aaron did you know the helicopter uh, some pilot stuff uh, throughout the sequence. Um, there's a lot of stuff involving um, sort of hovering the helicopter over a crowd of people, which as you imagine is is quite difficult. You know, when you're forty or fifty feet above lots and lots of extras. Um, the stunt itself, though, the barrel roll, was performed at an airfield 100 miles away, uh, which was closer to sea level than Mexico City is because it's an altitude factor as well as the you know the the, the people around and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So they, they mm. filmed this stunt at an airfield 100 miles away, and they used some CGI to meld the two shots together of the the sky the stunt and then the crowd and the skyline of Mexico City. Um, while we're on the Roger Moore films, it's this isn't the series' most famous barrel roll stunt, but you know, mercifully, uh, sound editor Per Halberg is care- careful to keep the slide whistle <laughs> off it this time. Uh, instead, Halberg talks about recording the actual noise that the helicopter made during the stunt. So there's a sort of roar of an engine, and he brings that up 
in the mix. It's a mad thing of like every time I rewatch this, I think I've misremembered it. I think I, think, I keep thinking they've they cut the barrel roll halfway through. They do it three times, but the first two times I happen to keep cutting to Daniel Craig's face in the helicopter. It's like I don't want to see Daniel Craig's face right now. I want to see this helicopter do a barrel roll, and um, they eventually get there. <laughs> they do have a complete, you know, uninterrupted barrel roll at the end of that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's a it's a heck of a way to open it. Um, on the subject of helicopter stunts, though, um, you, you mentioned earlier, Brendan, that there's another one at the end um, where they get to London, where the unit returned to London in in April 2015. Um, the the climactic helicopter crash on Westminster Bridge yeah, was filmed. Uh, as with the world, there's not enough before it's you know you you get special permission to shoot near the Houses of Parliament and near the Thames when you're James Bond. Basically, this not a lot of film and TV productions get this for security reasons. Um, in this case, they were permitted to, to film again, but at the point where filming was taking place, the UK was on high terror alert. Um, and for some reason, you're forbidden from setting anything on fire on the bridge. So, you know, you just can't blow things up on Westminster Bridge anymore, apparently. Um, so the climax of the sequence, as Brenda mentioned, had to be completed on the 007 stage at Pinewood. Um, an, an additional um, sort of practical factor in this Uh uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema noted that for the nighttime exterior shots around Westminster Bridge, it took 80 electricians every night just to light the bridge and the river just to make it actually visible. So that was another factor in um, in completing the sequence indoors. Mm. As was often the case with the Bond ex- uh, location shooting in London, a lot of the pictures from this leaked at the time. I don't know if you remember, but they were... Yeah. Um, the one that really caught everyone's attention was uh, ha- um, Christoph Waltz because he had the motion capture dots on his face. Uh, mm. And it was then obviously quite obvious that he was going to have a scar added in post-production, um, just further reinforcing what we already knew was that he was playing Blofeld in the movie. Wait, Christoph Fox plays Blofeld in this movie? I thought he was <laughs> Franz Oberhauser. <laughs> oh, this, li- I mean... <laughs> If it had happened before Star Trek Into the Darkness, that would be one thing. That they did it after. Oh yeah, what was the what, what did they say his name was? John Har- John Harrison. John Harrison, yeah. <laughs> and it was Khan all along, and oh. that made no sense in its uh, in its universe no. either. No. <laughs> so after all that, they returned. Uh, in fact, sorry, they flew out to Morocco um, in June to uh, shoot in a, a number of different places for when uh, Bond and Madeleine Swan uh, are in Morocco. Um, they filmed in Tangier um, and the market scenes there were filmed um, at um, a, a place called Bab al-Assa. And apparently it's the same place that Timothy Dalton's rooftop run in The Living Daylights was was filmed as well. Hmm. Um, the Hotel L'American was a private mansion uh, called the Palais Akaborn in um, just west of, of Bab al-Assa. And then the train that Bond and Madeleine are on leaves from Uja, which is close to the Algerian border, and it's um, the Oriental Desert Express to to Bouafa. Um, but the desert hideout of Franz Oberhauser, it, Blofeld, had been um, was built in a in a in a crater like mountain um, outside of a place called Rissani in southern Morocco, and that is also uh, appears on screen in the nineteen ninety nine Brendan Fraser movie The Mummy. Um, but the most exciting thing about this location was that when Blofeld's base was destroyed and filmed in the Moroccan desert, 
the stunt used 2,223 gallons of fuel, 72 pounds of explosions, explosives, and was all captured in one take, making it the biggest explosion in film history, winning a Guinness World Record. And so, yeah, there, there was like a huge amount of um, explosive there, and the explosion went on for seven and a half seconds. Wow. Um, Chris, Chris Corbolds um, was the man credited with that. But one man disputes this. Michael Bay. Michael Michael Bay disputes that this was the biggest (laughs) explosion on record. He said the one in Pearl Harbor was bigger. He said James Bond tried to take the largest explosion in the world. He says, bullshit. Ours is. (laughs) (laughs) And then No Time to Die went and set another record for explosions. It did a um, uh, exploded an equivalent of 136.4 kilograms of TNT, um, winning another Guinness World Record for the high most high explosives detonated in a single film take but there you go so the principal photography wrapped on the 5th of july 2015 a wrap party was held and the filming had lasted 128 days they're not gonna not not very eco uh eco shoot is it <laughs> gonna win any green awards for that i mean it's just a, a, it's a massive explosion and then we sort of didn't really film it that impressively i can't i can't, <laughs> I can't blame michael bay for like calling nonsense on that because you know if it, if he'd had the biggest explosion ever in a film you'd know about it you'd see it like eight times from eight different angles it, like it almost plays in the film as a thing it's like it's a one takes thing we've got to get right and they're like oh well we didn't let's move on <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit underwhelming isn't it it's all <laughs> yeah yeah if, if i didn't know that was the largest explosion it, like it looks smaller than the one in skyfall you know like when when the helicopter gets marmalized at the end of that mm. Um, did either of you note uh, the name of the hotel where Q was staying? Yes, the, the safe house. Do you mean? Yeah, the Pevsner. Oh yeah. Oh no, I didn't notice yes. that. Yeah, it's called the Pevsner, which is obviously a, a nod to um, the associate producer that we've talked about um, many, many times, yeah. who passed away the year year before, oh. passed away in twenty fourteen. So it's a nice little nod. And the, the safe house is the Hildebrand company, yeah. isn't it? which is a yeah. reference to the, the rarity. Income. Yeah. So the titles, so frame store, they dealt with the title uh, sequence uh, and it was designed by Daniel Kleiman back for his seventh. It took four months to complete this one. And it, it revolves around an octopus um, just wrapping, <laughs> its, wrap, wrapping its tentacles around everything. <laughs> Mm. Um, Sam Mendes, it was his idea for um, all the various strands in Bond's past coming together in one story, the tentacles of the octopus. Yeah, retrospectively doing that. Yeah. Um, So the titles, they featured uh, Silver, Vesper Lint, The Chief, and Judi Dench as M. Um, They wanted to actually get the actors and refilm them, Mm. but that proved very difficult obviously schedules to to get something like that um so they instead tried to use the rushes from the previous films but they weren't allowed to, to use them for contractual reasons so uh that's why we we get you know barely a look at them but it was daniel craig's idea to start the sequence with 007 and uh, daniel Kleinman said i'd be foolish if i didn't uh, if i didn't take on his opinion of it 
it's not the sort of thing I would normally put in because it's a bit retro and it speaks to Bond of old, the misogynist Bond harking back to 60s films. But in this case, I rationalised it and I could see it had a narrative intent. You see that he is a womanising character and it's not a very healthy relationship he has with women. Hmm. Um, he wanted to go one step further with it, with the, the tentacles. And um, at the end, he wanted uh, one of the woman's tongue to come out and be an octopus tentacle going into Bond's mouth. But uh, <laughs> once once it was what? rendered, <laughs> once it was rendered, they thought it was a bit too much. So they, they took that out. <laughs> Daniel Craig suggested that. No, no, no. That was Daniel, Daniel Kleinman, not Daniel Oh, Kleinman. right. <laughs> I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> producers, I <I'm> crazy. <laughs> wow. Um, so this sequence was actually shot digitally. So compared to the rest of the film, which, shot, which was shot on film. Um, uh, and then they had to uh, sort of grade it. So it matched up with the rest of the film. Um, and then with the song, he had to um, slow it, slow down the pace of the sequence that they would, they had created to match with Sam Smith's track, um, but also used lyrics from the track, such as a million shards of glass to, um, to inspire what was put into the, the final titles. Yeah. It's a thing that Mendes wanted early on in this. He wanted the song to be sorted out much earlier than usual in production. So it could be like used through the the score as well. It's one of the things he found from Skyfall is that he wanted to, they wanted to get the, you know, what the song was going to be figured out early on. Um, he and Daniel Craig both Radiohead fans and favoured them to do the song first. Um, so they reached out uh, to Tom York and um, Radiohead did do a, a song called Spectre, um, which was ultimately judged to be um, too slow paced, like not quite right for the tone of the film. Mendes did try to use it elsewhere in the film. There was, um, he, he basically said to, to Tom York, we're not going to use this in the titles, but we, can we use it in the film? To which they said, yeah, but we want to see where he's using it. And then when they went to put it in there, it didn't really fit. They felt you were concentrating on the lyrics more than on what was happening in the moment, so it didn't make it in there. It, I think it maybe could have popped into the end credits or something if, it, if they'd gone that way, but um, but it didn't wind up being in the film. Um, so Radiohead released it as a free download on Christmas Day 2015. Um, the song we actually get in the titles, the theme song of the film, is Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith. Uh, co-written by Smith and uh, Jimmy Nips. Uh, Nips said that as a piano player growing up, he did some Bond-like chords. So in a way, when he was sort of like invited to do this, he kind of had the idea in his head, the melody in there. It's a and it is. I think it's a decent Bond-esque melody, and it's 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 the weirdly vocals I've never especially liked about mm. this one. It, either the song itself got a mixed reception. Like on one hand, if looking back, the independent reported that Shirley Bassey trended on Twitter because the song was so disliked and everyone was saying, bring back Shirley Bassey. <laughs> I don't know how far that, as a metric that, that could be done, but it's reported, so I'm mentioning it. Um on the other hand, you know, it's it, it went on to success. It, it was the first James Bond song theme song to top the UK singles chart, which is mad, you would think Skyfall would have mm. got to number one with as big as it was. Um, but no, it was the first one um, to reach the top spots, and it did win some awards, which which Tom will come back to a bit later on. Um, as as Brandon mentioned, Dem- Daniel Kleinman 
had to slow down his title sequence once he heard the song. And it's, it is a thing, isn't it, with the faces coming in? It's sort of like an Oscars in memoriam reel for the previous films, <laughs> but notably missing any... Like, I'd be on Twitter afterwards if it was me going, like, they've snubbed everyone who died in Quantum of Solace. Like, Mathis <laughs> and Dominic Green and Elvis and Elvis's wig. But, you know, it's, it's the thing of slowing it down. It isn't the song like the film, I think, is it's Skyfall at 75% speed. That's what we wind up with. So in a way, it fits. <laughs> what do you think about um, the song? Um, I don't mind it. I think Phil uh, on our last episode put it quite nicely, or on the Skyfall episode, that he feels like Skyfall really set the mold for a lot of different things, and it's and the songs in particular feel like they've got collective amnesia. They sort of seem like Adele was the first Bond song, and so every Bond song after that has to be like the Adele one. Um. And I sort of get that from from this one. It's sort of a pale imitator. I, I don't mind it. Actually, from watching it recently, it did get stuck in my head a little bit. So it is a catchy tune. And it mm. is utilised quite nicely at some points in the film. Yeah. Um, but it does... I, I think, think it's it, nice, yeah. Yeah, I think it does get a big um, bit of a bad rap. But uh, I don't think... I think there's worse Bond themes. Man with does, the Golden Gun. Oh, definitely. Out. Yeah, there are definitely <laughs> worse ones. It does sound like the Earth song, though, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You won't unhear that. <laughs> That's a mashup I want to hear. <laughs> Someone will there. have done it on YouTube, yeah. surely. There, there's so many videos that just the credits put to this song instead, and it, it doesn't really fit, but they've done it. So good for them. <laughs> uh, so we've touched upon the music already, but Thomas Newman returned to score his second Bond picture, and it's Newman's sixth collaboration with director uh, Sam Mendes. Um um, but it's surprising. One of the reviews noted um, that how much of Skyfall's material gets re- referenced in Spectre, mm. um, and and so that's that's a, a common criticism of it. Um, but uh, we covered Thomas Newman on a previous episode, so I won't go too much into a great deal of detail. There's also not a huge amount of detail out there about this. Um, but one thing to note is that um, one of the early trailers, the July 2015 trailers, had John Barry's Honor Majesty's Secret Service theme on it. Um, That's right, yeah. Um, which was uh, obviously a great deal to fans and something they would do again for um, for No Time to Die. But Daniel Craig talking about the score of the film, he said, I saw this film for the first time on Saturday and what Tom has done with this movie and how much it has added to the film. And what he's managed to do becomes another character in the film. He's done such a brilliant job with it. This is honestly the best use of the Bond theme we've had in our movies. It's so emotive, that sound. And if you use it at the right point in the movie, then everyone remembers, yes, you're in a Bond movie. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I sort of agree with that. I mean, I, I like the score when I hear it. It's not one that I would listen to um, outside of uh, outside yeah. the movie. Though. Yeah, I it's agree. The, it's the film that's least shy. It's of Daniel Craig's front. I think it's the film that's least shy of dropping a little bit. That's the theme in there. Yeah. On the reuse cues thing, the bit that really bothers me in terms of um, reuse material from Skyfall is that sort of the 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 cue that sort of accompanies M's Tennyson reading in Skyfall, so like the big build up to you know Silver bursting into the inquiry mm. is just replicated more or less wholesale on the end of the, the car chase in Rome, and it's really distracting to me because mm. I associate so much with Skyfall with that moment yeah. in Skyfall. So yeah, that's that's that did book me rewatching it recently. So a nice little bonus treat. There was a comet relief sketch in on thirteenth of March, twenty fifteen, uh, where several members of the cast and crew, uh, including correct Daniel Craig himself, Ben Whishaw, Michael G. Wilson, Sam Mendes, and also Sir Roger Moore, uh, 
they appeared in a sketch and in the sketch they it's like a behind the behind the scenes documentary of the filming of um Spectre and the joke is that Daniel Craig has the voice of a little girl and has to be redubbed <laughs> Uh, and the redubbing is done by Alan Carr as the reveal at the end. Um, also, uh, which because I, I rewatched it earlier, I'd forgotten that Naomi Harris is voiced by Johnny Vegas, which is quite <laughs> that's quite funny. Um, but yeah, that's they normally do something Bond related for for comic relief, and that was this this year's one. I've forgotten all about that. I enjoyed that at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that wraps up our section on the production of the movie. So um, uh, let's move on to the release. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, um, the first kind of public screenings in the UK took place on um, the 26th of October 2015, simultaneously pretty much with the Royal Charity World premiere, uh, which took place at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, the venue was decked out in Day of the Dead uh, regalia and um, Prince William and Kate Middleton and Prince Harry were in attendance for for the Royals screening. Um, so, yeah, as I said, nationwide also 8 o'clock screenings on a Monday evening, which is kind of billed as a preview. And then the opening day was Tuesday, which always seems to me to be strategic. It gives you like, you know, because when you do weekend box office reporting, you get... Um, sorry, I'm jumping ahead to box office. Let's stick with the premiere. <laughs> so, <laughs> ahead, so ahead of release, ahead of the premiere... Um, the film was getting, Spectre was getting five-star reviews um, all over the place. Robbie Cullen gave it five stars for Telegraph. Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian. Uh, Mark Kermel gave it four stars, acknowledged it didn't live up to Skyfall, but still raved about it. On the more measured side of the UK reviews, um, Kim Newman observed that for the two-and-a-half-hour running time, this was one of the series' thinner plots. Like for Bond film, it was quite a thin plot. Um the US release came a week later, and the US reviews were a little bit more mixed. Uh, Manola Darkus for the New York Times said there was nothing surprising about the film and that all originality had been sacrificed. Uh, Kenneth Turan for the LA Times said it was exhausted and uninspired. And Darren Franish of uh, Entertainment Weekly said, and I think this is um, this is especially well observed, uh, Spectre is an overreaction to our current blockbuster moment, aspiring to be a serialized sequel and proving itself as a saga. Um, a lot of the like Wikipedia entries for Bond films have like retrospective reviews sections for the older films, where you know, like on a Majesty's Secret Service has a bit of a glow up, and other films take their knocks. I feel like this one is sort of ready for the retrospective reviews section, like just <laughs> seven years after it came out. But it was, you know, a glowing reception to it when it came out. Sorry, we've caught up to the premiere again. So it was opening um, sort of nationwide at the same time as the the royal premiere was happening. So this Monday preview was ahead of Tuesday being the opening day. And as I said, I think it's strategic because when you do weekend box office figures, you know, if that counts the days of the previews. At the most extreme, you get something like, I don't know if you remember, but Bad Neighbours opened in the U- the Seth Rogen comedy, opened in the UK on a Saturday. So it added six days of previews to, <laughs> to the three-day weekend. So it had, you know, the biggest uh, comedy box office opening of the year. It's like, right, okay. <laughs> That's based on another six days. So with Spectre, there was seven-day a seven-day opening weekend where they had a massive opening weekend gross of £41.2 million, which is about half of what it made altogether. <laughs> so so wow. box, box office-wise, um, you know, that said, the three-day opening, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, was £20.4 million. That's like more than Skyfall had in its opening. Uh, its only competition in UK cinemas that week was an event cinema screen of Tannhauser at the Met Opera, 
which uh, peaked at number eight in the top ten. Opera's not for everyone, to paraphrase Mr. White and Quantum of Solace. <laughs> um, it also opened simultaneously in IMAX cinemas uh, with a wider release in the UK than Skyfall had enjoyed. They hadn't ended up filming with IMAX cameras for this one, but they did you know, sort of upscale it for that. It had almost double the screens that Skyfall did on its opening and eventually surpassed Avatar to become the UK's highest grossing release on IMAX screens. Wow. Uh, with £10.1 million of its overall gross coming from the uh, large, larger format. Um, as Brendan mentioned at the beginning, it was the sixth highest grossing film of the year worldwide, uh, going through conversion rates. So $880 million was... Sorry, yeah, $880 million was the final uh, gross for that, so not another billion-dollar Skyfall-style blockbuster. And I think what goes... It, it kind of goes to... Um, Going back to the, the box office stuff we were talking about at the beginning, in the UK, Spectre did ultimately gross less than Skyfall overall, um, of £95.2 million. It's currently still in the top five of all time, but the number one of all time, as you might have guessed, is Star Wars The Force Awakens, which came out about six weeks after this, and then became like the big ticket and the big ticket rewatch over Christmas. Whereas I remember going to see, like, Skyfall had a bit more room to itself, like, over the festive season. Like, I remember going to see a sold-out screening of Skyfall, like, my third view, maybe, on, like, New Year's Day 2013, like, sold out. And it had come out a couple of months earlier. Whereas this had a lot more competition, and um, despite the sort of critical reception, it had, like, less enthusiastic word of mouth, I would say. Yeah, yeah the, other, the other thing about this is, um, adjusted for inflation, it's the 22nd most expensive film ever made. <laughs> Well, of course it is. Did you see the size of that explosion? <laughs> <laughs> well, we heard about it. We didn't see it. But <laughs> in terms of awards, as as teased by Mark, it, Spectre won um, uh, mainly for its music. It won the Best Original Song at the Oscars and the Golden Globes for Sam Smith's writing on writings on the wall. Hmm. Um, Sam Smith caused a bit of controversy at the Oscars by claiming to be the first. Was it the first gay man to win an Oscar or something? <laughs> they had to quickly backtrack on that. Um, there was a rolling sort of bin fire of comments that they made throughout yeah. that, really. It was kind <laughs> yeah. of like, what about Howard Ashman? And they said, um, I don't know him, we should do it. And it's like, Howard Ashman died. Okay, never mind, we're just going to just stop talking Sam Smith. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, interestingly, he was up against Lady Gaga that year uh, for a song yeah. called Till It Happens to You from The Hunting Ground, it's a film I don't remember, to be honest. Um, I think yeah, it's a won... documentary one. Yeah. Right. So he won the Oscar there for the uh, best original song and also at the Golden Globe as well. And interestingly, at the 2015 Empire Awards, Spectre won Best British Film and Best Thriller. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And their fan voted awards. So um, that's quite an interesting point, I think, when we move on in a second to the sort of the legacy of the film. But Brendan, what did our, what did our lovely followers on Twitter think of the movie? Well, I think this one, it's, it's the closest we've got to a, a, a wide agreement. And um, I noticed that it wasn't as wasn't as commented on as a lot of our other ones either. So maybe mm. people choosing to, to hold back. But um, three word reviews. George Aldridge, a uh, friend of the show, said cinematic universe, cuckoo. Um, <laughs> it's quite good. Andrew Mullins said, why so yellow? Uh, <laughs> Steph Baronson, bad brother Blofeld. Um, Pedro McSherry said, like fine wine. So mm-hmm. I assume there's a, there's a positive mm. there. Um, Chris Davis said greatest modern bond. 
Very interesting. Mark Hevingham said, not really brothers. Um, James Bond Complex said, Craig doing more. Yeah. Very very good play on words there. Mm. But, I mean, the rest of them, you've got Nobby Nomad saying, misconceived bloated Blofeld. Chris Cummins says, Craig's low point. Monkey Thumbs says, bloated bland Bond. Nick Millwood said, bloated, contrived, boring. And Gareth Lewis said, shouldn't have bothered. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> so, yeah, not, it hasn't got many fans, really, in, in the, in the uh, three-word reviews. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's um, one of those, like I said, I think it was uh, fairly well received at the time. Um, and, and then the, the sort of the luster's gone off it. Um, I guess one of the major complaints, um, and particularly for me, is the sort of the way that they, they use Blofeld in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually, I mentioned this the other day on Twitter and someone said that in the Daniel Craig continuum, like the five film arc of his, it's not really a twist because this is the Blofeld of his universe, um, which is a fair point. Um but the problem is, I think that when there's such a rich heritage for the Blofeld character, and I'm no huge fan of, of the character, I think he's sort of, um, uh, yeah, really hit and miss in the in the movies. Mm. Um, I just think it was sort of, it just wasn't the best way of doing it. Uh, and, and why put this personal connection between the two characters? For what reason? Um, and a lot again, another one of the big complaints is this sort of retro, retrospective continuity continuity that they try to introduce that mm. just sort of fell flat with a lot of people um and i wonder how much of that was because of you know the script problems that they had going into it it, it, it could have just done with a, a re, an extra rewrite or two perhaps to try and tie it all together so it wasn't quite as heavy-handed but uh, that's that's my general feeling on it yeah, I just wish they would. They had showed some restraint when they got the rights back from the McClory estate, mm. and and just finished whatever they wanted to do. What they they must have had something in mind where they wanted to go with Daniel Craig if he was going to do another one, and stick to that rather than crowbar Blofeld in, and crowbar this this new Spectre, and then try and fit everything. And it, you know, it, it it made like we covered on the Skyfall episode. It weakens Skyfall. For that reason, for me personally, the retroactive side of it. Yeah. Thing. Mm. Well, I will say this: um, Raul Silver is a code name, yes. So silver, like yeah. white, and like green, is a color. So that does fit with the idea. That this has all been this color coordinating sort of villains. So, like, as much as this wasn't planned, they did a decent job of making it look like it wasn't. It's not that that doesn't make sense. It's just that in the moment, as you're having it explained to you, it's not emotional. Like we've got mm. a character who goes back to the origins of James Bond. Who, if, you know, if you're only watching from Casino Royale, you've never heard of before, and it's three films after we just got James Bond's actual origins. You know, Casino Royale starts with we don't need to see Bond before he's a double O. It starts amazingly with that pre-title sequence. It throws him straight into it. As for like the the script problems. Like this is just so full of dead ends, like things like Smart Blood that they came up with and just never quite mm. 
should have taken out of it. And, you know, we haven't got around to talking about it, but like we, we mentioned the helicopter thing that ends this thing. So can we just talk about how ridiculous the finale of this film is? <laughs> like, it's absolutely hilarious from the moment it arrives in London. Like, MQ and Moneypenny go to meet Bond and Madeleine in secret, even though Bond has trackers in his blood that the baddies have access to. <laughs> they, do as, like, they do well to get as far as they do before they're ambushed, frankly. So the next thing is that Bond is taken with a bag over his head to the MI6 building that's about to be demolished and is being treated as like, you know, as a, a demolition of the old ways, even though this is the new MI6 building in real life and what they're doing in the films is moving them back in a white hall like in the 60s. It's so, it's so <laughs> backwards. It's so backwards, the new beginnings of the Sam Mendes films. It's ridiculous. Anyway, it's important that he's taken to this building with a bag over his head because he wouldn't otherwise wouldn't know where to go and when, like if he killed his captors before then, but his captors do need to get killed so that he has a gun and he knows where Blofeld is and then he goes into this building. <laughs> but it's important that he doesn't have the bag on his head anymore because he needs to see the graffiti taunts and the, the inkjet printouts <laughs> of characters from other films because Blofeld is the inkjet printer of all his pain. <laughs> It's objectively a very silly way of taunting someone, and it's played completely straight. It's not like for all this humor in this film, it's it, it's absolutely stupid. It's a stupid ending, is the thing, and it's some perils of Penelope bullshit where he's got to run around and find Madeline, who's tied up before the building explodes. He tells him he's got three minutes. It's like an inverse. Golden Eye, you might as well go with the same three minutes you gave me. He's like, what do you mean? We've got six minutes. <laughs> and for all of the stuff that Mendes think like, we have to avoid Austin Powers, it just runs straight into Goldmember. Like, the end of Austin Powers and Goldmember is Dr. Evil is Austin Powers' secret brother from childhood. It, like, <laughs> runs flat out, like, leaves a big spectre-shaped hole in the wall at how hard it runs into being Austin Powers. And I'm still baffled by it all these years later. As, as Tom said, I've never been convinced by Blofeld in the films. I think Telly Savalas mm. is the only time that he's, he's... You know, they're not either playing obscurity for depth or giving Mike Myers material for 30 years down the line. And you look at the way they've brushed into this and you just think, somewhere, Kevin McClory is laughing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, it, and his relatives are very rich from the from the whole situation. Mm. Um, but the the other thing as well that the final on the bridge, yeah, I'm, I'm in no I, there is no reason why Bond wouldn't pull that trigger. He's got a license to kill. He kills all the time. It doesn't make sense for him not to. Yeah, it's the stuff that's not fully worked through. Like it's it's been observed that you know when he takes when he disarms the gun, slides the thing out takes the bullet yeah. out of the chamber, it's the same as Madeline takes the gun apart earlier on. Which is a yeah. nice touch, I suppose, but it's not... They don't have... We said on the No Time to Die episode, I don't think they have much chemistry in this, and there's a there's some catching up to do in the next film. Yeah, and that final shot where they drive off in the DB5, mm. I was thinking, well, that, there you go, you've tied it in a nice ribbon, that's it, done. Daniel Craig, don't bother coming back. Mm. I mean, it's like... I mentioned, you know, Batista's great, but I think Daniel Craig is still the absolute hero of this, like soldiering through the injury. You know, true to the intention, it's his most Roger Moore, like outing. And I think he still deserves immense credit for bringing some life out of this utterly inert, mirthless <laughs> cartoon of a script that he's been given. Yeah, you've got to wonder whether it, if it had ended with the explosion at Blofeld's lair, you know, and, and, and that had been the end of the movie, would that have been a more satisfying way of doing it? I think that... When when that point happens, and you look at the runtime, you still got like twenty five minutes left, and you're thinking, "What is left to do?" Mm. <laughs> well, um, there's some printouts, <laughs> and, we, uh, and we need to show him with a scar on his eye. We must. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's 
it's that sort of fan service that just starts pervading. It it goes from before this, and it's now just sort of taking over everything, really. But um, it's an un, it's a it's an interjection into this. I think that Skyfall has some problems as well. Like I think Skyfall has this weird thing of like it's retrofitting some stuff onto Bond. It's sort of trying to save a franchise that doesn't need saving at the point. It's like, and there's just this sort of twice shy feeling after Quantum of Solace, because they want to do their take on Spectre, but we've we've had their take on Spectre. We've had like a modern version, you know, because mm. they can't use the rights. You know, like necessity is the mother of invention in the same way as you can't use Spectre so you come up with Quantum, which again, I know that film has its problems, but I think it's a smart modernization of it. And then Skyfall kind of like had a lower budget, so had to do some more creative stuff, had to be more based in London. And this one comes out with the biggest budget imaginable. It's just a reflection how, how expensive was it? Which, how... Well, it was, what, it was it was two hundred and ten for Skyfall, wasn't it? And mm. then this one came out over to like two hundred and fifty, two hundred and sixty, something like that. Yeah, there's all these quotes yeah. about how they want to take open up the world again and take it out into the world and do international stuff again. And um, where does the film end again? Where does it choose to set its exciting climax in London? Mm. <laughs> Literally outside, outside the head building. Yeah, it's Ugh. it's nonsense. But the 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 thing is, right at the beginning, when this like the 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 plot is that MI5 and MI6 are going to merge, right? Mm. And the problem for me, I'm thinking, I'd rather see that film where you've got Bond having to work with MI5 agents and going to Stoke and doing (laughs) UK-based jobs. That's the film I want to see. It's just desk sharing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, uh, Sorry. Uh, And also, just to mention, like the the whole story about C and the the, the drone um, surveillance and all that sort of stuff, had just happened. We just had that plot in Captain America: The Winter Soldier the year before. Yeah. It, yeah. it came in and it was just sort of oh, this again. Are we really yeah. doing this again? It was poor timing. Hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's it's that thing that I think is the problem with with these two films, and it's less so in Skyfall because Skyfall makes a much more convincing and entertaining case for it. It's that it's not in you know chasing the Marvel thing. It's not a modernization. It's if anything putting it right back where it was in the sixties. It's just a gourmet hot dog version of like the of the of the Connery and Moore stuff. But it's sort of like it's sort of like faintly half remembered in a weird way. It's not. It's strange because it's a complete. We're now completely in reverse from what Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace try to do with with Bond. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you've got the train sequence that's been borrowed. You've got the skiing stuff that's that's been borrowed. That's been done before. Hmm. Um, the, the, I don't have the, any issue with the homages of it. I think that like the story it's telling is well, as much as it wants to open up the world. The fact that it ends, as you say, so many meters from the NI six building shows how inward looking it is. Hmm. One yeah. thing I will say is that after I saw No Time to Die, and had planned to see No Time to Die again with my wife. Um, we sat down to watch Spectre um, before No Time to Die because she hadn't seen Spectre. Um, and I found it uh, viewed in tandem with No Time to Die. I think I found it a more enjoyable, enriching experience. And I reckon that experience um, depends on how much, how you feel about No Time to Die, though, really, because. Um, that's saying that's putting a lot on on this movie to say you'll like it more when you've seen the next one. It really should make be it more enjoyable in and of itself. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've got to sit down for six hours. That's what you're saying. 
Well, yeah, exactly. And then he'll die at the end and uh, you'll feel (laughs) sad. Well, on top of that, they didn't know what was going to be. Like, I can see the argument for Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, you back-to-back makes Quantum of Solace better. But they started developing Quantum of Solace wherever it wound up before Casino Royale came out. Mm. Like, No Time to Die is having to do a lot of catch-up, I think, from this. It's this pedal so far backwards that, you know, Tomorrow, like, sorry, I almost said tomorrow never dies. Uh, no time to die has to be, you know, two hours forty five minutes long just to get us back in place. Yeah. Mm. I mean, wh- where does it? I mean, top, middle, or bottom tier? Where does it? Where does it fall for you? Oh, it's Bo- bottom for me. Bottom. bottom five any day of the week. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Fair enough. Well, I guess we should wrap it up there, uh, Mark. Thank you again for joining us uh, for your with your excellent insight and uh, thoughts on on this film. Um, if people want to find you online, where where can they read what you're what you're up to? Uh, yeah, I've been doing um, weekly Bond rambles um, about each film, sort of coincide um, with the 60th anniversary re-releases. Um, this will be by the time this episode comes out, I'll probably have completed those. I've I've got Spectre and No Time to Die left to right that'll be that'll be there um if you've enjoyed the the quiz that i did the last time i was on the podcast we've now got um film stories is running sorry i should say film stories is where the it's the website are. yes yeah. film stories uk uh is also where we're doing the film quiz podcast um hosted by nick helm they're comedians answering um funny film questions uh and you can also find me on twitter at m harrison 90 and brendan if people want to find us on social media at James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, if you have anything you want to add, you want to correct us on for, for our episode on Spectre, then you can email the show at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for listening. As always, if you can leave us a re- nice review and a rating wherever you, wherever you find us, that really helps. Um, and with that, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return. Is that it? It's not going to return next week. Well, just <laughs> I'm leaving it ambiguous just in case we have to have a little break. Right, okay. Cuckoo. Ciao. Bye. Games Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Francois Bowser died 20 years ago, James, in an avalanche alongside his father. The man you're talking to now, the man inside your head, is Ernst Stafford Blofeld. Catchy name. Did you ever stop to notice If I'm gonna make it through the time Did you ever stop to notice This is something I gotta find
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.